Welcome back to World Cup Rambling. As always, subscribe to the podcast, rate, review, tell your friends. Also, follow me on Twitter, at Matthew Ocott, and at World Cup Ramble. Last month, I looked at the background to the 1978 World Cup, the military junta, the preparations for the tournament, the reaction from other countries, plus a preview of the 16 teams. Now it's time to get into the chimichurri steak and punched potatoes of World Cup 78 by looking at the first group stage. We've got Argentina facing the weight of expectations, West Germany's descent from greatness, Brazil struggling to live up their glorious past, Scotland's maddest campaign ever, plus a lot more. So let's get this show on the road. versus Italy. This was the first match played at Mar del Plata, and when you watch it, especially on the official film, you'll notice how poor the pitch is, and it would get much worse. Italy's form had tailed off since qualification. The last thing they needed was to concede an early goal, yet that's exactly what happened. Seeks went flying up the left wing, invaded Gentile and Scherer, no mean feat, and crossed for Lacombe to head the ball pass off. Time, 37 seconds. The early goal was just the platform France needed to end a winless streak against the Italians that went back 57 years and 17 games. France were unable to build on their fast start, and most sources attribute this to Benetti and Tardelli in the Italian midfield. Chris Freddy said that, as a double act, they were scary and good. Colin Malham wrote that Benetti, the craggy Juventus midfield player, rallied his team brilliantly by winning control of the midfield and sending the forwards on the attack. Benetti was one of the most notorious and effective midfield destroyers of that era. John Foote described him as a huge muscle-built man, the epitome of the defensive ball winners who were and are a key component of every successful football team. Rarely did he come away from a challenge without the ball. Ardelli did a good job of shutting out Platini, who was France's main creative player. Italy's equaliser was bizarre. Berega's slice shot triggered a pinball situation, with the ball eventually going in off Rossi. The winner for the Italians came when Rossi crossed from the right, and Zaccarelli's shot went past the flat-footed Bertrand de Man in the French goal. Rossi looked promising. Italy got a 2-1 victory, and all the worries about their pre-tournament form were behind them. One, two, three, four. One, two, one, two, three, four. 
Brock Jingle means it's time for some shirt number nerdery, which I feel is one of the highlights of the retrospective episodes. We've got ourselves a double helping here. The French were using the alphabetical block number system. The goalkeepers were numbers 1, 21, and 22. Baratelli was number 1. Bertrand Deman was 21. And Dropsy, an unfortunate name for a goalkeeper, was 22. The defenders were numbers 2 to 8. The midfielders were 9 to 15. And the forwards were 16 to 20. Within those blocks, the shirts were handed out alphabetically by surname. So with the defenders, for instance, Battiston was number two, Bossy's number three, and so on, up to Trezor, who was number eight. The French did have a couple of anomalies that I noticed when I was going through the list. Jean Vion is number four, and Bracky is number five. Strictly speaking, their numbers should have been the other way around. Also, Berdahl who is the first striker alphabetically, is 14. And Platini, who is the last midfielder alphabetically, is 15. Again, strictly speaking, their numbers should have been the other way around. The Italians were also using the alphabetical block number system, although they didn't include the goalkeepers, who were Zoff at number 1, Conti at 12, and Bordon at 22. The defenders were 2 to 8. The midfielders were 9 to 11 and 13 to 15. The wingers were 16 and 17, and the forwards were 18 to 21. Within those blocks, the shirts were handed out alphabetically by surname. So with the defenders, for example, Belugi was number two, Cabrini was number three, and so on up to Sherea at number eight. Argentina versus Hungary. The pressure on host nations is always intense, but the river plate for Argentina's first game of Mundial 78 was something else. Chris Fetty wrote that a snowstorm of blue and white ticker tape descending through the floodlights welcomed the players onto the pitch, one of the great World Cup visuals. Verratti, the Hungary manager, had told Brian Glanville the veteran football writer, that everything, even the air, is in favour of Argentina. The success of Argentina is financially so important to the tournament. David Miller wrote that only the most assertive of referees with inflexible nerve would withstand the pressure of the home crowd. Three of Minotti's starting lineup, Theol, Luque and Passarella, the Iron Man of Argentine football, according to the official film, were River Plate players, so they were on their home ground. Surprisingly, Minotti hadn't called up any players from River's great rivals, Boca Juniors. Phil Soar likened this to a German manager ignoring Bayern Munich or Borussia Mönchengladbach players. After nine minutes, Argentina's hype and expectation threatened to fall flat. Zambori's shot was parried by Fiol, but Zappo tucked away the rebound to give Hungary the lead. David Miller wrote that the silence of the tomb momentarily fell on the vast, tiered stadium. Argentina were only behind for five minutes. Alguin also there, 
And Guido only gets into the second attempt and it's put in. Ardila's backheeled a free kick to Kempes, who struck a powerful low drive. Gustar, the Hungarian goalkeeper, couldn't hold a shot. Luque forced home the loose ball. If you watch the official film, you get an excellent montage of both teams firing repeatedly. Much would be made of Argentina's cynicism, but the Hungarians could be aggressive too. Ryan Glanville wrote of bad faith on both sides. The winner didn't arrive until the 83rd minute. Alonso gets it through, the goalkeeper that left, and into the net it goes from Bertoni. There was a scramble in the area, and the ball broke for Bertoni to steer it into the empty net. Hungary lost their discipline in the dying minutes. Parasic picked up a second yellow card for firing Gallego. Nyalazi got his second yellow for clattering Tarantini. Barotti would later say that his two dismissed players were carried away with the enthusiasm of their youth. Hungary finishing up with nine men added fuel to the conspiratorial fires that Argentina would be aided by weak refereeing. Chris Freddy wrote that Torosic was filed a dozen times without protection. Argentina's first appearance had already left a bad taste in the mouth. Garrido, the Portuguese referee, was the target of criticism, with Colin Mallon writing that he never appeared to be fully in control of the game. Brian Glanville criticised Garrido for being weak, and he also wrote that despite Argentina's supposedly easier on the eye style under Minotti, their defenders are still horrifically callous, abominably cynical. Granville wrote that if things continue like this, Argentina will kick its way to the World Cup. For these comments, Glanville will be met with, in his own words, a welter of thin-skinned abuse. El Grafico attacked me bitterly for my strictures on Argentinian football behaviour, past and present. One of the Argentinian radio commentators would also have a go at Glanville, with what Glanville described as abuse which was at best hysterical, at worst incontinent. Argentina's victory led to carnival scenes in Buenos Aires, with the Belfast Telegraph reporting that the celebrations could scarcely have been more exuberant if the host nation had already won the World Cup. A reminder of the politicised atmosphere that the Argentinian team was operating under came after the match, when a junta official, supposedly commenting on Argentina's tough section, said to Luque that it could be a group of death as far as you're concerned. Argentina were using the alphabetical system. Their shirts were numbered 1 to 22 and then handed out alphabetically by surname, which led to Alonso, a midfielder, wearing number 1, Ardiles, another midfielder, wearing number 2, Fiol, the goalkeeper, wearing number 5, all the way down to Ricky Villa as number 22. Campes, the first of Argentina's three iconic World Cup winning number 10s, just happened to be the 10th name alphabetically. 
when Ossiar Dales spoke to 442 magazine, he said, There were a lot of arguments over which shirts people wanted to wear, so Menaki decided to do it in alphabetical order. 1978 would be the only time that Argentina did the alphabetical system in its purest form. By 1982, Maradona was on board and he got his preferred number 10 shirt when his name was 12 alphabetically. Whilst in 1986, Maradona, Passarella and Valdano got their preferred numbers. Italy versus Hungary. The pitch at Mar del Plata had continued its decline. It had divots and holes with lumps of grass being churned up. At one stage in the second half, the ref used his boot to try and squeeze the grass back into place in the Hungarian penalty area. The dreadful pitch didn't seem to hinder the Italians, who swept into the second round with a performance that belied the pessimism from Italian journalists. Berzot said afterwards, We are now afraid of no one, Brazil or anyone. David Miller wrote that the combination of Bettega and Rossi, the power of Tardelli and Benetti in midfield, the assurance of the back four, had suddenly given Italy a collective confidence. Italy took the lead when Meseros was wrong-footed by a deflected shot from Tardelli, with Rossi being on the spot to follow it in. Meseros had committed the same error that Gustar had committed in the Argentina match, pushing the ball straight out to an opponent. Meseros was one of several changes made by Hungary. Two of those changes came about because of suspensions after the red cards against Argentina. A minute later, and it was 2-0 to Italy, Bettega escaping the attention of two Hungarian defenders to shoot the ball home. Bettega would also rattle the woodwork three times. Two of the efforts were from close range, and he should have done better with both of them. In the second half, Benetti took time off from his midfield enforcer duties to drive in the third goal from long range. The Hungarians were awarded a rather soft penalty, which Toth scored, but it was hardly a consolation. They were out, whilst the Italians were into the second round, and already looking like the most impressive side in the tournament. Argentina versus France this match contained many of the essential elements of World Cup 78. It was in the River Plate, with a trademark ticker tape and the fanatical Argentina fans. It had Argentina's fast and aggressive style of play. Jonathan Wilson said that muscularity and directness set it apart from La Nuestra. There was controversial refereeing in favour of the hosts a hard luck story for the defeated team, and a welter of conspiracy theories inevitably linked to the military junta. Before we even get into the action, and thanks to Reese Richards for highlighting this, the Montoneros, who were the left-wing guerrilla organisation, scored a great victory. 
the Montaneros hijacked the audio signal within a 1.5-mile radius of La Plata city centre and broadcast a message. This next bit is verbatim from Reese Richards' book. As the match kicked off, instead of the sounds of the commentator in Estadio Monumental, listeners heard the voice of Mario Fermanich, the commander-in-chief of Los Montaneros. Fermanich spoke about the state terrorism of the military and the painful reality of thousands of disappeared Argentinians. The Montaneros sought to peel back Videla's statesmanlike facade, highlighting the savagery of the junta in dealing with dissenters. To them, revealing this was to show the real Argentina. The Montaneros had been ruthlessly and successfully targeted by the junta, so this was a bloody nose to Videla and his cronies. By the time the military found a room where the broadcast had been made, those responsible had gone. France showed little sign of being intimidated by the home crowd. Reese Richards wrote that the young French team settled into the opening rhythm of the match better than their hosts. Michel's cross was met by Lacombe's diving header, but he couldn't generate enough power and Fiol got the ball comfortably. Seeks then went down the wing and crossed for Rosto, who nudged the ball the wrong side of the post. Argentina came into the game more. Tempes and Valencia got in each other's way, and the ball ran for Luque, whose shot was blocked on the line. Tempes emerged as a real force in this game. He hit the post twice. One of the occasions was when he made a skillful, powerful run down the middle, played in Valencia, got the ball back from him, and then rattled the woodwork. It was Kempes on the brink of half-time who was the trigger for the game's big controversy. Kempes, Andalute, Trezor, gets a solo tackle, and great appeals again for a penalty. And the referee coming towards the penalty spot. No, he's coming to talk to the Canadian linesman. We're looking at it again. Trezor pulled back from the tackle, then got in a tackle. Oh, it hit his hand, but whether or not that could be given as deliberate is extremely arguable. What's the referee's view? Well, the referee has given the penalty. Well, I think that's desperately hard on France. Tempest bamboozled Bathane with a lovely drag back before charging down the middle. He played in Luque, whose shot was blocked by a falling Trezor, the French defender accidentally touching the ball with his hand. Bubak, the Swiss referee, had been behind the play, and then he went across to consult his linesman, who had been even further away from the incident. Somehow they concluded that it was a penalty. For cynics, somehow was that the vociferous Argentinian crowd demanded it. Phil Sora called it an absurd decision. Brian Glanville said it was monstrous. The decision added more fuel to the fire about weak referees pandering to Argentina. Andre Duclos wrote in World Soccer that if the game had been played on a neutral ground, 
he would never have given it in a thousand years. Passarella to take it. And in the corner. So Argentina take the lead at the very death of the first half. He really hit the penalty. The way penalties should be struck. Argentina went into the half-time break with a 1-0 lead. France had a sense of grievance and there was a further setback for them in the second half. Valencia. Oh, that's a lovely different, a fine save. Beautiful save by the goalkeeper who fell on the post as he came down. Valencia hit a spectacular dipping volley. Bertrand de Man, at full stretch, tipped the ball over the bar but his back struck the post. A really scary moment. Campes and Lopez checked on the stricken French goalkeeper, who eventually had to be stretched off and replaced by Baratelli. However, things started to look up for France. 15 minutes on the clock there, but quite a few to be knocked off for that stoppage for the injury to Bertrand de Mer. Fiol thought about it, here's the come! And hit the crossbar, Lacombe again! And turned in by Platini! Platini has equalised as Fiol changed his mind. And one or two of the commentators from the French television have forgotten their main job, leapt to their feet to congratulate their team. It was Lacombe whose shot came back off the crossbar. Out it came, they really kept their heads here, the French. And Platini, the left foot, in fact got a deflection off the line but into the corner. Battiston dinked the ball into the penalty area. Lacombe knocked the ball over the onrushing field and against the bar. Lacombe got to the rebound and his touch set the ball up neatly for Platini to drive in the equaliser. Argentina nearly regained the lead when some dazzling Kempes footwork created a chance for Luque, but Lopez managed to deflect the shot just wide. Anything Kempes could do Rosto could do too, the Frenchman taking the ball in his chest, flicking it up and then spinning to volley it towards Six, whose header was saved by Fiol. Platini showed the skills that the world would get used to watching in the 80s when he glided through the middle before releasing Six with a killer pass. Six was clean through, one-on-one -on -one was Fiol, but he put the ball wide. A bad miss one which caused him to sink to his knees. There were 16 minutes remaining when Argentina scored one of the finest World Cup goals. Luque forward trying to lose his marker, Lopez, his Adiles. Luque waiting for it to line right. Oh, a brilliant goal! Brilliant goal by Luque! And the crowd have gone mad! Ardiles played the ball to Luque, whose first touch sent the ball up in the air. As it came down, Luque set himself before unleashing a screamer of a shot into the net from 25 yards. A goal worthy of winning a game that was judged by many observers to be one of the best of the tournament. The raucous celebrations from the River Plate could be heard down the road in the torture centre. Seeks came so close to equalising for France, thrashing in a volley from distance, which Fiol, at full stretch, 
clawed away for a corner. So Luke turned out to be the match winner, but he went from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. Luke, whilst nursing an elbow injury, received the news that his brother had been killed in a car accident. Bams were eliminated after just two games, a harsh outcome for a promising team. Andre Duclos wrote in World Soccer that We went out, and surely with honour, only the atrocious, home-oriented refereeing of the inept Jean Dubac prevented France from drawing or perhaps even winning our game against Argentina. That penalty will rankle in the minds of French football fans for decades to come. Conspiracy theories about this game flowered both at the time and in later years. Argentina's dubious penalty, France being denied two penalties, the referee allegedly winking at Luque. The Junta's baleful presence meant that allegations of bias carried a more sinister flavour than the home team merely getting the rub of the green. Then in 2003, and thanks to John Sperling for this, a muffled voice caller rang into a French radio show claiming to be a former France player and said that the match was rigged and that he'd witnessed the Argentinian players taking pills before the game and being so high that their warm-down lasted for two hours and that FIFA had excused them from drug tests. Like so much surrounding this World Cup, the full truth will probably never be known. Hungary versus France. This was a dead rubber between two eliminated teams, so I'm not going to waste your precious time dwelling on this. All the goals came in the first half. France, making a number of changes, took the lead with a screamer from Lopez. They increased their lead through Bertel, who profited from a Hungarian defensive error. Zombari gave Hungary hope with a fine shot curled into the top corner in the edge of the box. That hope was snuffed out a minute later. Rue's cross went through to Rosto, who fired France 3-1 ahead, which is how the match finished. Nothing more to see here. Oh, that's right, I nearly forgot. A sense of fashion now from one with the clothes show. Kit nerdery, and this might be the ultimate World Cup kit nerdery. Owing to the fact that a lot of people still have black and white TV sets, FIFA stipulated that one team should play in dark shirts and the other team should play in light shirts. In the build-up to the tournament, FIFA wrote to the Hungarian and French associations, informing them that Hungary should wear red and the French should wear white. However, FIFA reversed this decision and sent out a second memo telling the French to play in blue and the Hungarians to play in white. A breakdown in communication meant that the memo didn't make its way from the French FA's admin team to the kit staff. This meant that when the French team turned up for the match, they were wearing white shirts, the same as the Hungarians. The responsibility was on the French to change, but their traditional blue shirts were back in Buenos Aires. Kickoff was delayed for 40 minutes. Colin Malin wrote, To the horror, no doubt, 
of those whose job it is to arrange the television programme schedules. The French sourced a set of green and white striped shirts from Atletico Kimberley, a local club, not so much Allez les Bleus as Allez les Verte Blanc. The Kimberley shirts were blank, which meant that numbers had to be ironed onto them. There were 14 shirts, but the French matchday squad had 16 players, 11 starters and 5 subs. Kimberley, as a club team, had no chuck with the World Cup numbering system, so they wanted the French to iron on the numbers 2 to 11 and 13 to 16, which caused an issue for those French players whose shirts were normally numbered 17 and upwards. This meant there was the bizarre situation of players having one number on their shirts and another number on their shorts. Rostow, for example, had number 7 on his shirt, number 18 on his shorts. Rouillet had number 11 on his shirt, number 20 on his shorts. World Cups are so efficiently run these days that you'll never get this kind of kit anomaly happening again. But the competition is all the poorer for the lack of these strange things. Argentina versus Italy. This was the second successive World Cup in which these two nations would meet. They would also play each other in 1982, 1986 and 1990. The leadership of Group 1 was at stake. Harry Miller described this game as the first flashpoint match of this World Cup and that Beresot's crusade to bring law and attacking order to Italy's football reaches crunch point today. Not everyone was convinced by the Italian transformation. Eric Batty of World Soccer described the Italians as those game stranglers from Turin, and he said, They are only a shade more adventurous in allowing fullbacks and Libero to move upfield now and again, but they only do it when they are behind and when it is safe to do so. Off the ball, there is a lot going on that the officials are missing. Leopards do not change their spots. I suppose you do need a touch of scepticism about any team that can accommodate ruthless operators like Chantile, Tardelli and Benetti. Beresot had contemplated playing several reserves and leaving out his front three, Carzio, Bettega and Rossi. The Daily Mirror reported that a player's revolt had put a stop to this plan. Some of the Italian press believed that Beresot caving into the players was Italy's undoing, as the manager missed the opportunity to rest some of his key men. Italy were perceived to have run out of steam in the latter stages of this World Cup. Argentina were desperate for a victory that would allow them to remain at the River Plate Stadium for the rest of the World Cup. They would have to make do without the injured Luque. This allowed Bertone, the match winner against Hungary, 
to make his first start of the tournament. And for those of you who are interested in these things, Passarella of Argentina and Sherea of Italy were born on the same day, 25th of May, 1953. That's one for anyone out there who's a student of the birthday paradox. For the first time in this tournament, Argentina ran into two things that couldn't be intimidated. Italy's hardman midfield and a magnificent referee, Abraham Klein of Israel. David Miller wrote that Klein was unwaveringly insistent on applying the laws as they are written, with a resultant hail of abuse from the home country. Klein's excellent performance put him in Argentina's bad books, something which would play a role in the refereeing machinations prior to the World Cup final. Italy's well-organised defence and midfield stopped Argentina from making those powerful, direct surges that had worked so well in the previous two games. Campes had a free kick that was well saved by Zoff, whilst Ardiles had a shot that lacked the power to threaten the Italian goalkeeper. Passarella had a header from a corner, which Zoff saved too. Italy's best chance in the first half was a close-range shot from Bettinger. The Juventus man didn't catch the ball cleanly, hitting it into the ground. The ball bounced up and Fiol was able to push it over the crossbar. The breakthrough didn't arrive until the 67th minute, and it was one of the finest goals of the tournament. Reese Richards called it a training ground move of sheer artistry. Rossi's still battling. Bettiger in the middle. Antonioni. Bettiger. Rossi and Bettiger going in on the one-two. That's a goal! Bettiger and Rossi working the one-two. Lovely little touch back from Rossi. And Bettiger a deadly finisher. I first read about this goal in the Golden Goals section of the Orbis Italian ID binder. Alan Martin, I hope you're listening. Antonioni, the midfield general, played the ball in for Bettiger. Bettiger gave the ball to Rossi with an outside of the right foot pass and evaded his marker in one motion. Rossi, with a stylish back heel, returned the ball to Bettiger, who burst into the Argentina box and drove the ball past Fiol, 1-0 to Italy. Gallego went down under a challenge from Cabrini in the box. A lesser referee might have caved in to the intense pressure of the home crowd, but Klein waved play on. Bettiger's goal turned out to be the winner. Italy won the group with a 100% record. They looked the most impressive of the leading nations in the first round. Argentina had to settle for second place, which meant leaving the River Plate Stadium and going to the Gigante de Araito in Rosario. This looked like a setback for the hosts. France finished third, but it showed the potential that would eventually flourish at the next two World Cups and the 1984 European Championship. As for Hungary, they had turned out to be the poorest of the European teams at this World Cup. That glorious pass getting further and further back.
Okay, so that's group one in the bag, and we'll go on to group two. West Germany versus Poland. Continuing the arrangements first put in place in 1974, it was the champions who had the honour of opening the tournament, meaning that this was the first match of the World Cup. It took place at El Monumental, the River Plate Stadium, a venue fit for champions, possibly. A surface fit for champions? Not exactly. The pitch is going to be a problem. In fact, Dania, the Polish captain, has come up with a quote today to say that the River Plate pitch has been a disaster, full of holes, and it looks as if ten finals have been played on it on the same day. And in fact, if you remember, about seven weeks ago, they had some problems with the drainage system on the River Plate Stadium, and they had to completely re-turf it. The pitch was dreadful, and before it was played on, there was the opening ceremony. Let's join a crowd of close on 80,000 in the River Plate Stadium, and our commentator for the ceremony is Gerald Sinstadt. This is Argentina 78, scene of the 11th World Cup final. 16 teams with 77,360 spectators here in the River Plate Stadium in Buenos Aires, and some 600 million television viewers in virtually every corner of the globe. It's just after 10 minutes to 2 Argentina time, and in about an hour from now, Bertie Fuss will lead out the West German world champions to begin their defence of the trophy. Meanwhile, we have a ceremony of welcome from our Argentine host. Any country that stages one of the world's great sporting festivals is naturally anxious to dress its window in the most impressive manner possible, and I think it can be safely said that that has never been more true than it is here. Flight of pigeons, the eternal symbol, and great stress laid in this opening ceremony on peaceful symbolism. 1,700 children are taking part in this display. They come from schools not only in the city, but over the whole sprawling area of Greater Buenos Aires. They've been chosen not only from state schools, but also from the private schools of the various foreign communities in the Argentine capital. Their ages range from 13 to 17, and that upper limit is not an accident. With no one of voting age taking part, the emphasis is firmly on the innocence of youth, free from any suggestion of political involvement. And it's perhaps significant too that Argentina's president, Lieutenant General Jorge Rafael Fidela, is already present. He took up his position before the ceremony began. He didn't make a formal entry having said that he wanted as far as possible just to be here as a spectator. And now the children form the word Mundial FIFA. Mundial simply means World Cup. It's the word on everyone's lips in Argentina. It's also the word on key rings, ashtrays, lapel badges and all kinds of bric-a-brac. It's on t-shirts and travel bags. It's even on the specially labelled bottles of one of the very drinkable Argentine wines. We're seeing from these young people some marvellously drilled precision. These positions taken up in a matter of seconds. Music provided by a military band. And now the beginning of the parade of representatives of the 16th party. Led by our Two seconds in the breaking off from time to time for marching routines and simple gymnastics of play. Preparations for this ceremony have been kept secret 
so the events are unfolding freshly in front of our eyes as much as yours at home. It certainly hasn't been any rehearsal here in the stadium, so the coverage by the Argentine television director and his cameramen is largely spontaneous, although there is a basic timetable of events. There was incidentally a drastically curtailed alternative program as a standby in the event of rain, but the critical hour for implementing that, which was 11 o'clock this morning our time, passed with nothing worse than cloud and a stiff breeze. That football symbolizes the World Cup. It's in a kind of horseshoe shape, which you've probably seen as the Argentine 78 symbol. Just a little sunshine at the moment. We had, when we arrived here a week ago, a very bright, clear blue skies and very bracing air. There's been some rain occasionally, cloud blowing up from time to time. And a couple of days ago, we had very strong winds and a sharp drop in the temperature. In fact, on Tuesday, the thermometer didn't get above 11 degrees centigrade. That's 52 Fahrenheit. There's still the Argentine flag, blue and white stripes. Pictures being relayed all over the world in colour, but the viewers here in Argentina are seeing them in black and white. And now this marvellous kaleidoscope of flags. The flags of the FIFA nations, more members than the United Nations. The opening ceremony was the usual carnival of colour, flags, balloons and dancing children. Pierre Radnage in World Soccer wrote that those kids must have been as fit as the teams after all their rehearsals. Bill Soar observed that the trappings of military rule didn't appear to be present in the stadium. I wonder if that was on the advice of the American PR agency. General Videla turned up in a suit instead of his military gear. Graham McCall described the Argentine butcher as looking like a spiv with his slicked back hair and his grey and white thick pinstripe suit. Videla's speech was one of those pass me the sick bag moments of which there would be many in this World Cup. Today is a joyous day for our country, the Argentine nation. Two circumstances contribute to this fact, the commencement of a sporting event of such an international level as this football world championship. On the other hand, the amiable visit of thousands of women and men, coming from the most diverse regions of the earth, who honor us today with their visit, on the sole condition of their good faith, in a climate of affection and reciprocal respect. And it's precisely the confrontation in the playing field, and the friendship in the field of human relations which allow us to assure that it is possible, even today, to coexist in unity and diversity. Which is the only way to build peace. That is why I ask God, our Lord, for this event to be truly a contribution to the strengthening of peace, that same peace we all wish on to the whole world, and on to all men of the world. This peace inside of which man can be fully realized, as a person, with dignity and in liberty. In the context of this sporting confrontation, characterized by its chivalry, in the context of friendship between men and between people, and under the sign of peace, I declare officially inaugurated this 11th Football World Championship of 1978. When the Archbishop of Buenos Aires stepped forward to make a speech, the microphone failed. Nobody wrote the speech down, so there was no text to be made available afterwards. I suppose that's one for the conspiracy theorists. The junta 
reminding the Roman Catholic Church who was the boss. As for the match itself, on paper it had potential. The world champions against the team that had finished third. It was a repeat of the decisive second group stage match from 1974. Jacek Gamok, the Poland manager, hadn't forgotten that rain-sodden encounter in Frankfurt. He said, We are ready mentally and physically to get our revenge. This is a good, if not a better Polish side than the one that surprised so many people four years ago. The Germans, always associated with great planning and efficiency, were in a state of chaos. Paul Soar wrote that their camp seemed to be a madhouse. The root cause of the difficulties was that Helmut Schoen was unsure of what his best team was or his best formation. He had equivocated over various players, and when it came to the opener, he ditched his usual attacking system, one centre forward and two wingers, and went with two strikers. Only three players, Meyer, Votes and Bonhoff, survived in the 1974 final. Poland looked the better team, although this wasn't saying much. Szymanowski's low shot that dribbled wide of Meyer's goal. Lubanski had a snapshot that went wide. Also off target were Sharmak and Lato. Vienna forced a good save from Meyer. As for West Germany, well, Bonhoff found himself in a good position and shot narrowly over. Those so-called chances I've described were all token moments in the nadir of World Cup opening games. David Miller would write that Two teams eyed each other across a no-man's land, while the rest of the soccer world yawned. Jack Charlton in the ITV commentary box was not impressed with what he saw from the world champions. I used to like to see Beckenbauer when he played with him because he would come from midfield, come from the back into midfield and allow the midfield player to get forward quickly. But the Germans never did any of that today. They just left the fever at the back and uh, they are just who went occasionally late on in the game, we never saw anything positive from them at all. The match finished goalless to the displeasure of the crowd at the River Plate, and now you had to go all the way back to 1962 to find a goal in the opening game. Frank McGee wrote in the Daily Mirror that it was bluntly more of a non-aggression pact than a football match. One consolation is that surely the competition must give us all bigger, better and more spectacular performances. The observers Hugh McIlvenny called it a match of numbing sterility, the kind of event that should have been watched with the soundproof balaclava back to front. The reason why FIFA had given the honour of opening the championship to the World Cup holders was because the opening game was seen as too much pressure for the hosts. But fifth game, combined with Brazil's insipid goalless draw with Yugoslavia in the 1974 opener, had defeated the purpose of the whole exercise. Colin Malin would write that the match was an unmitigated disaster. If any more evidence was required, it proved that the final should again begin on block. This match was it. The FIFA technical report would recommend that 
In order to ease the pressure on teams, the first matches in all first-round groups should be played on the opening day, with each sub-seat arranging its own opening ceremony. Whatever the reasons for the boring opening game, and whatever the possible solutions, the match exposed the alarming decline of West Germany, who were hammered by their own media. Günter Netzer, a winner at Euro 72 and World Cup 74, condemned his compatriots as being without a leader, without ideas, even without skill. There was nobody in the Beckenbauer class to drive them forward, and of course Beckenbauer had played a key role in keeping everyone on an even keel in 1974 after the East Germany defeat. So West Germany were missing the Kaiser's leadership both on and off the pitch. Loa and Bonhoff, the midfield creators, were anonymous. World Soccer's Keir Radnage was scathing of Bonhoff's performance, calling it the worst game I've ever seen him play. Fisher, one of the strikers, was described by Phil Soar as astonishingly slow on the ground, ineffectual with high balls. The only consolation for West Germany is that they had made lacklustre starts to World Cups before, but it always finished there or thereabouts. That's it then. The first game is over. A lot of you might say thank goodness for that. West Germany the holders and Poland drawing a goalless draw. Tunisia versus Mexico. Mexico's World Cup record suggested that they weren't good travellers. They had made seven appearances in the competition, and only once had they been beyond the opening stage, and that was in 1970 when they were the hosts. Nevertheless, they were expected to have it easy against Tunisia, the unheralded newcomers, regarded as perhaps the weakest team in the World Cup. Tunisia had the charm of the underdog, and they were very popular with the crowd in Rosario. The Tunisians brought flowers with them, which they threw to the fans. Ian Hockey wrote that the Tunisians would also charm the crowd with the precision of their football. Diab and Tarak shone in midfield. Niali, who was the reserve goalkeeper, standing in for the legendary Sadok Atuga Sassi, looked great. The defenders weren't afraid to come up from the back either. World Soccer described Tunisia's style as a compelling mixture of skill, adventure and naivety. It might have gone wrong for the Tunisians when they conceded a penalty shortly before halftime. Della Torre's cross struck Jabali's outstretched arm. Ayala rolled a spot kick home to give Mexico the lead. Make sure you watch Niley's comical dive. He crouches down before springing up to the left with the ball passing easily under his body. It took just 10 minutes of the second half for Tunisia to get back in the game. Tunisia broke wonderfully from the back and Cabe, from just inside the box, took a touch before guiding the ball low into the corner. A goal of speed and skill. The official film said that the goal was long overdue. 
Tunisia's second goal was even better. Laksami playing the ball through for Tarek. He nudged it sideways for Gomid, running up on the left, to score brilliantly with the outside of his right foot. A great forgotten World Cup goal. Gomid then turned provider, sending a nonchalant pass across to Duib. The Mexican defence was nowhere to be seen, giving Duib plenty of space and time to run in and hammer the ball past Reyes for 3-1. Before the match, Abdel Chitali, the Tunisian manager, said, We can't expect to win anything. Now, Tunisia had become the first African team to win a match at the World Cup. I think this Tunisia team gets forgotten when people talk about African sides that have made a big impact on the World Cup. It was a fully merited victory, described by the Belfast Telegraph as a dazzling display of skill and opportunism. The results showed that there was World Cup quality beyond the traditional continents of Europe and South America. Suddenly, Tunisia were top of a group that contained the world champions, the third place team from 1974, and the humiliated Mexicans. Antonio Roca, Mexico's manager, said, I think our status was maybe overestimated by our own followers. One such follower committed suicide. The Mexican FA was bombarded with telephone death threats towards Roca, and there was also a bomb threat towards the building. Never doubt that the World Cup is serious business. West Germany versus Mexico. The Mexicans came onto the pitch at Cordoba carrying an Argentina flag, a blatant attempt to get the locals onside. After the Tunisia defeat, Mexico probably reckoned they needed all the help they could get. Following Germany's goalless draw with Poland, Schoen desperately needed to address his team's lack of drive and creativity. He made some changes. Dietz replaced Zimmermann at the back. A brown chick was dropped in favour of Rumniga. Dieter Muller came in for Eric Beer. That last change necessitated a tinkering with the formation, as Muller was a striker and Beer was a midfielder. The chopping and changing confirmed that the manager didn't know how best to organise his team. Now he was trying two strikers, Muller and Fischer supported by Rumniga on the wing. There were rumblings from within the camp from Schoen's own coaching staff about the manager's vacillation on big decisions. Brian Glanville called this the old familiar pattern of West German participation in World Cups. Not that any of this would matter against a team that Chris Freddy described as an embarrassment, adding that Mexico made the midfield a tackle-free zone. The first German goal came after 14 minutes. Dieter Good try, good goal. Dieter Müller, 14 minutes and 10 seconds into this game. Dieter Müller took Wutz's ball on the turn 
and drilled in a low shot from the edge of the box. The official film described Muller's strike as the start of a first half avalanche. The second goal arrived 15 minutes later. Nice ball off to Hansi Muller. And there's the second goal. Hansi Muller has opened his account as an international in West Germany's colours. And this is fourth game. And it's 2 0 West Germany. All the running done by Floyd. That ball laid off to Hansi Muller. He was a little bit lucky to get a second stab there, but he tucked it away with great precision. The Germans piled forward. Fischer backheeled the ball to Floa, who played in Hansi Muller. Muller evaded a feeble challenge from Mendizabal before shooting low across the goalkeeper. Only Quelar and young Hugo Sanchez carried any real threat for the Mexicans, but Meyer in the German goal was equal to anything they had. Germany's third goal was a shambles, from a Mexican perspective anyway. And Mendizabal made a mess of it. And Rummenigge comes away for West Germany. It's a break of two on two. Rummenigge could go all the way on his own. He has. It's 3 nothing West Germany. Karl-Heinz Rummenigge. Mexico had a free kick a few yards outside the German box. An attempt to tee the ball up for Mendizabal went wrong. Rumniger won the ball and ran straight down the middle of the pitch, brushed off Ramos before jabbing the ball past Reyes, who was injured in his attempt to stop Rumniger and had to go off. It was a strong run and finish from Rumniger, but at international level, you can't let someone run in virtually a straight line from their own box into yours. That can't be allowed to happen. Floa put the seal on Germany's first half rampage. Three. And that took a deflection and it's 4 nothing. Well, three well-constructed goals. That one a bit fluky. Look at the look on Bertie Volk's face. And Hansi Muller. Something that was not expected. Bonhoff teed the ball up and Floa's shot from distance sailed into the top corner. That piece of commentary says it was deflected, but on the official film, it looks like it goes straight through without touching Quelar on the way. West Germany led 4-0 at halftime, and in the second half, Rumniger heaped more misery on the demoralised Mexicans. Fischer making the break down the left touch line. Good ball across the box, Hansi Muller. And Rumniger! Five it is! Fisher crossed from the left. Hansi Muller acrobatically knocked the ball into the centre for Rumniger to thump it home. Loa had a shot that hit the inside of both posts and then he completed the route by stepping away from Ramos and Della Torre before shooting past Soto, the Mexican sub-goalkeeper. 6-0 to West Germany. Roca, the Mexican manager, said we were beaten by a side who played like world champions. That was true up to a point, but Mexico's supine defence and midfield had allowed West Germany to have a field day. The world champions looked to be back in course, soon having apparently found an attacking system that worked. However, hindsight tells us that this lopsided result had more to do with 
the Mexicans being terrible and the Germans being brilliant. By the way, make sure to check out Buenos Dias Argentina, the song at the West Germany 1978 squad recorded with the Austrian singer Udo Jürgens. Poland versus Tunisia. The Tunisians were the darlings of Rosario. The neutrals got behind them and the Poles were cast as the villains of the peace. The neutrals were in for a disappointment as Poland won the game 1-0. A fatal air kick from Cavi allowed the ball to reach Lato, who scored past Niley with a powerful shot. Nevertheless, the Tunisians showed their opening performance against Mexico had been no fluke. Bamid forced a good save from Tomaszewski. A wonderful flowing move, which left the Poles bamboozled, saw Laksami hit the crossbar. Gorgon let a long ball bounce, defending 101, which allowed Tunisia in from close range, but the header went over Tomaszewski and landed on the roof of the net. Niley, the Tunisian goalkeeper, made some good acrobatic saves, but Poland didn't hit the heights. Like the Germans, they had gone backwards since 1974. World Soccer called the Poles disorganised and uninspired, lucky to hang on to those precious two points. West Germany versus Tunisia. When the draw was made, this looked like being the biggest mismatch in the tournament, the world champions against the newcomers from North Africa. However, Tunisia had shown themselves to be far better than anyone expected. Meanwhile, the Germans weren't the commanding side they had been four years previously. Chitali, the Tunisia manager, was popular with the German press having married a German woman and taken some coaching courses in Germany. Niley, in a Tunisian goal, had an uneventful game. He made an acrobatic save to stop a fierce shot from Bonhoff, saved long-range efforts from Dieter Muller and Hansi Muller. He kept out Fischer and at one stage he conceded a free kick after coming all the way out of his penalty area and firing Dieter Muller. That's not to say the Germans were in total command. They did look the stronger side, but World Soccer said they played without real authority or conviction. There was little opportunity for them to run up the score like they had against the Mexicans. Tunisia were a strong, well-organized team. Ryan Glanville wrote that Diab, the main man in Tunisia's midfield, looked better than any of the West German midfielders, Floa and Bonhoff included. The Tunisians had chances of their own. A Gravy's strong shot was saved by Meyer, and then a Gravy hooked the ball across the goal and wide of the far post after a swift passing move. A and Tunisia enjoying what they've got, the draw, and West Germany just don't care. They're not coming to try and get the ball. They're keeping players back. 
just in case there is a Tunisian breakaway, it's all over. And this really, a match in which the Tunisians have emerged with honour. To draw against the world champions, well, even their wildest expectations couldn't have included that. Remarkably, Tunisia had picked up a nil-nil draw against the world champions. Ibrahim Mustafa, in his book No Longer Naive, described it as another performance to make the world stand up and take note. Sitali said, By 1982 or 1986, we shall have nothing to prove, and if we can qualify, those countries in our groups will no longer regard us as outsiders, but as a team to fear. The rest of the world has laughed at Africa, but now the mockery is over. As it turned out, the point wasn't enough for Tunisia to reach the second group stage, but they exited the tournament with lots of goodwill. World Soccer wrote that Tunisia have emerged as a team of considerable quality and potential. Morocco in 1970 had shown flashes of North Africa's potential. Tunisia had taken a leap forward in 1978, and the Algerians of 1982 and the Moroccans of 1986 would take things even further. The point was enough for West Germany to go through, but as Colin Malm wrote, West Germany ended Group 2 as they had begun it, goalless and in disgrace. There was a suspicion that the Germans had deliberately played for a draw to get an easier second round group, but the composition of the second round groups was unclear at this stage, so this suspicion didn't make much sense. Helmut Schoen said, We did not play as I had planned. I was disappointed in spite of the fact that we controlled much of the match. The German press lashed Schoen and his team. Bonhoff publicly criticised the manager. Hermann Neuberger, the head of the German FA, was also critical of the manager, saying that the team hadn't trained together long enough or hard enough and looked far from being genuine title contenders. Mexico versus Poland. Before the match, Vasquez, the Mexican captain, said, I'm scared about going home. Mexico's dreadful performances had led to them becoming the target of threats back in their homeland. They actually started this final game okay, possibly because of several changes that Rocca had made to his starting 11. Hugo Sanchez narrowly missed the target with an overhead kick and Tomaszewski smothered an Ortega effort at the near post. Unfortunately, the Mexicans were hit with another setback shortly before halftime. Ortega, but it's given away to Dana. Lasso, and Gomez has to make it a double. Boniak's waiting in the middle. And Boniak makes six. With just three minutes to go to halftime, Boniak, who got there, and met it decisively on the volley to uh, open things up for Poland. Dana set Lato away up the left, 
Lato hit the byline before crossing for Boniak, who scored via the underside of the bar. Mexico hit back early in the second half, Ortega dashing down the right and hitting a low cross that was delicately turned in by Rangel. Much had been expected of Rangel, but this was his only moment of achievement in the whole tournament. The goal provided a shot in the arm for Mexico, and they came close to taking the lead. Cuellar flicked the ball on towards Sanchez, who had his effort repelled by Tomaszewski. Sanchez, on the ground, kicked the loose ball towards Cuellar, whose shot was blocked. A real moment of crisis in the Polish defence. Poland soon restored their lead. In from Smuda. Looking down for Dana and it was deflected. Dana again. Oh, yes. From Kazimierz Dana. Well, it broke fortunately to him on the edge of the box. But there was no nonsense about that left foot shot. So Poland find the response they wanted. There was a pinball situation at the edge of the Mexican box, which concluded when Dana hit a left foot screamer that flew past Soto and into the top corner, one from the catalogue of great forgotten World Cup goals. It was Boniak who put the icing on the cake. Lubanski. Boniak to his right, this is Boniak. It must have swerved from Boniek, so I think unless the goalkeeper was unsighted, you have to fall Soto. But that's 3-1 to Poland. There was the curve. Soto palpably late with the dive, and it's the second goal for Boniek. It was a screamer from around 40 yards, which marked Boniek's emergence on the world stage. Poland 3, Mexico 1. So Poland won the group. West Germany were through as runners-up. Tunisia were an unfortunate third, but they were the only team in this group to distinguish themselves. The Tunisians were the best of the eight teams who went home after the first round. Sorry, Scotland. Mexico finished bottom, the worst team in the World Cup, and they received a hostile reception when they went home. Chris Freddy wrote that Mexico were the most persuasive case yet, for the abolition of zonal qualification. Mr. Trump, how would you describe Mexico's performance at the 1978 World Cup? They're not sending their best. Nazi away, Kip, though. Make sure you check it out. On to group three, Brazil versus Sweden. The evolution of Brazil was reflected in remarks from Georg Eriksson, the Swedish manager, in the run up to the match. I have seen Brazil against France and West Germany. They went in for shirt pulling, they fired in front of the referee, 
and when he was not looking. They were a dirty side. Once upon a time, opposition managers had praised Brazil for their attacking flair. Now you had a manager openly calling them dirty. In this match, Brazil were not really dirty, just dull. Seco played a killer pass for Tenino, who pushed a low shot wide of the post. Apart from that, Seco never hit the heights. Rivalino, the last link to 1970, played a good ball through for Reinaldo, but Hellstrom smothered the shot. Rivalino was another player who struggled. Chris Freddy wrote that the former champion was not the force of old. Brazil, lacking wingers, lacking reliable strikers, couldn't produce a consistent attacking threat. The Mar del Plata pitch was poor, and Coutinho said it affected his team's attempt to play a quick passing game. Maybe that's true, but Brazil had been underwhelming long before they arrived in Argentina for this World Cup. Sweden, in the words of Colin Malum, were a difficult handful. They played with the self-confidence of a team that chose to ignore the fact that Brazil were former world champions. And Bolaf is pushed up. Sweden looking good here. French, square for Bolaf and chipped in nicely. It's good for Schoberg. It's a goal. Thomas Schoberg has done it. What a marvellous bit of play. A sharp, incisive attacking move, full of good passing and quick running, concluded when Bo Larsen pushed the ball through outside of the right foot. Schober got between two Brazilian defenders to jab the ball past Liao. It could have got worse for Brazil. Larsen was left with a completely free header from a free kick, but the ball hit the bar. Brazil uninspired and uninspiring, dragged themselves back into the match seconds before half-time. And Cerezo gets one in and in. It's in the back of the net. From Ronaldo in injury time of the first half. Cerezo swung in across to the far post. Ronaldo swooped in and hammered the ball home. In the second half, Hellstrom scrambled across his line to push away a deflected Rivellino shot. Zico picked up the ball from a wayward defensive clearance, but his long-range shot was well held by Hellstrom. Down the other end, Wentz's chip flew narrowly over the bar. With the seconds ticking down, Brazil won a flurry of corners. From the last of these corners came one of the World Cup's most famous controversies. And now we're into injury time. Nalino's kick is a good one. It's brilliantly put in. So, oh, a great protest. The whistle had already gone. The ball was in the back of the net, but as soon as that ball was kicked, the whistle went, and it doesn't count. Clive Thomas in the middle of great protest from the Brazilian, in the middle of controversy here. The cross was put over. It seemed to be put in, but the whistle went. 
immediately was kicked by Nelinho and that's a famous draw for Sweden well extraordinary stuff the whistle had already gone so it didn't count as Zico put it in Nelinho sent the ball into the box Zico rose to head in what appeared to be Brazil's winner but the celebrations were cut short the officious Clive Thomas ruled the goal out because he'd blown the final whistle when the corner kick was in the air. On the official film, you get a good shot of Hellstrom talking to Thomas just before the kick comes in. Hellstrom would later say that the ref told him the corner would be the last kick of the game, and you'll notice that Hellstrom makes no attempt to move for the ball. The match finished 1-1. The Swedish players celebrated. It was the fourth time they had played Brazil in the World Cup and the first occasion on which they had avoided defeat. It was a double celebration for Nordqvist, the Swedish captain, who was winning a record-breaking 109th cap, going past Bobby Moore's landmark. As the dismayed Brazilian players complained, Thomas kept waving his hands to indicate no go before theatrically pointing at his watch. I wonder if a 10-year-old Mike Dean was watching and thinking, that's who I want to be when I grow up. Coutinho, speaking about Thomas's decision, said, I find it unbelievable, incredible. The players are sad and depressed. Thomas had refused to sign a contract forbidding referees to speak to the press. He explained his decision to rule out Brazil's goal. Normal time was up before the corner was taken and there were 32 seconds of injury time to play. The ball was in flight when I blew the whistle. I saw the header but I didn't see the ball go into the net. As far as I was concerned, the game was over. The Brazilians have only themselves to blame for wasting time overtaking the corner. It was true that Nalino had got into a minor disagreement with a linesman about the placing of the ball, something which ed up several seconds, but Thomas's judgment was obtuse in the extreme. David Miller called the decision technically correct, but naive. Indeed, why not wait until the ball went dead or until it was cleared and then blow the whistle? For those familiar with Clive Thomas's refereeing, the decision to disallow Zico's header fitted a pattern of high-profile controversies. Not for nothing was he nicknamed The Book. He was arguably British football's first personality referee. And if you speak to Everton fans about the 1977 FA Cup semi-final against Liverpool, you won't hear a good word about Thomas. Thomas's dream was to referee the World Cup final, but that dream was over when he was informed by the referees committee that he was being sent home. He would never referee a World Cup match again. However, he continued to stand by his decision to rule out Zico's goal. He would later say, Zico was too late, possibly only four tenths of a second too late, but too late nevertheless.
Spain versus Austria. Neither side had recent World Cup pedigree. Spain hadn't been in the World Cup since 1966. Austria since 1958. Based on the draw pots, Austria were one of the four weakest sides in the tournament. Spain had most of the support in Buenos Aires, naturally. However, it was the Austrians who took the lead with one of the great forgotten World Cup goals. Almost got the fullback Della Cruz through there. And now here's a chance as Schachner goes away. He's got Crankle in the middle and it's two against two. Schachner, all on his own. Can he make a name for himself? Yes, he can! What a superb goal, Jerry. He did remarkably well, Schachner, here. Patsy won the ball with a brilliant side tackle. He then played a lovely pass down the wing for Schachner. Schachner raced in on goal, bamboozled the Spanish defender before shooting high past Angel, the Spanish goalkeeper. Angel then had to make a good save when Kreutz went through and hit a fierce shot. Angel dived spectacularly to his left and caught the ball. Spain were only behind for 10 minutes. Danny brought them level. Marcelino's cross, Petsy's clearing header fell short, allowing Danny to spin and hit a shot that was deflected past Consiglia. Ruben Cano had the ball in the net for Spain, but the goal was correctly ruled out for a foul on Consiglia. Cano then broke through, left Consiglia on the ground before teeing the ball up for Cardenosa but Sarah was back to make the clearance off the line. Cardenosa went off injured at half-time, causing Spain to lose their grip in midfield. Crankle blazed a great chance high and wide for Austria, but he narrowly missed the ball on the slide after Schachner knocked it across to him. Crankle eventually found his shooting boots to score the winner on 79 minutes. Dara's left foot shot struck Bernardo and the ball broke for Crankle to sweep it home left-footed. So after the first pair of games, it was Austria who led the group. Brazil versus Spain the pitch at Mar del Plata had declined even further. Ryan Glanville wrote in World Soccer that the surface looked as if it had been churned up by an army of weekend golfers. But this was only partly to blame for what was one of Brazil's worst World Cup performances, one which demonstrated how far they had fallen since 1970. Revelino, who had picked up an injury against Sweden, was absent, meaning Brazil lacked the control that might have been provided by the ageing superstar. Camino, the fullback, was put on the wing, a failed experiment. Brazil no longer had any quality wingers, or if they did, Coutinho hadn't been able to spot them. Nelinho blasted in shots from all angles, but only one of them looked threatening. Angel diving to his right, to palm the ball away. Zico couldn't impose himself on the game and the closest Brazil came to scoring was when Olmo, the Spanish defender, headed against the underside of his own crossbar. 
Stuart Horsfield wrote that the trite version of football Brazil were playing had not changed in four years. Spain had drafted in Santalana of Real Madrid, Kubala, the manager, having yielded to player power. It was Santalana who created what should have been Spain's winner. Burria. Leo came along and missed it. Cardenas there, stopped in the line by Amaral. And Leo shot blocked and scrambled away. And that was quite unbelievable. Santalana soared above Leal, who came off his line. Santalana knocked the ball down. Brazil's defence was at sixes and sevens. Cardenosa should have scored, but he took an age to make up his mind before prodding a weak shot, which Amaral blocked on the line. Deseu, Adinho supporting. Brazil throwing players forward, but it's all too late. Their second drawn match. A pedestrian performance, and all the comments come from the crowd. Brazil left the pitch to the sound of jeers. The so-called tournament favourites had drawn 0-0 and were in danger of going out in the first round. Harry Miller wrote that two sterile draws amount to pretty conclusive evidence that the magic seems to have finally gone from Brazil's football. This next bit is from Phil Soar's book, World Cup 78. Some 50 Brazilian supporters could be seen marching in procession along the main street of Mar del Plata. They were singing what appeared to be hymns and they had candles in their hands. One man was carrying two pieces of wood in the shape of a cross from which hung a man-sized straw doll. On it, was a sign reading Coutinho. Pretty serious stuff. It was almost like a funeral for Coutinho and for Brazilian football. Back in Rio, an effigy of the manager was burned. One Brazilian newspaper said, Coutinho has broken down what has been painstakingly built up over 10 World Cups. A Brazilian fan took his own life by drinking insecticide. The draw with Spain was seen as a national disaster and drastic action ensued. Rumours went around that Coutinho had been sacked. Admiral Nunes, the head honcho of Brazilian sport, was reported to have orchestrated a takeover of the national team, stripping away some of Coutinho's power and responsibilities. This was almost the worst of both worlds, the manager remaining in place, but no longer being in sole charge of the team. Austria versus Sweden. This match almost became a personal contest between Krankel, the Austrian striker, and Hellström, the Swedish goalkeeper. Krankel scored a penalty just before half time to give Austria a 1 0 victory. Krankel went down a bit easily as he ran past Nordquist, who was trying to get out of the way. Hellstrom pulled off two great saves from a pair of Kreutz headers as Austria continued to look strong going forward. 
Afterwards, Senekovic, the Austrian manager and a veteran of their previous campaign in 1958, said, We've at least shown the world that Austrians can play football as well as ski. Austria, the group outsiders, were through to the last eight, leaving the other three sides to scrap for their World Cup futures in the final pair of games. Brazil versus Austria. Before the tournament, a Brazilian magazine had written a boastful article entitled 10 Reasons Why Brazil Will Be World Champions. Well, here they were, going into the final game of a so-called easy group, with qualification still up in the air. There were several changes to the Brazil team. Zico, Reinaldo, Edinho and Nalinho were all stood down. In came Mendonca, Dinamite, Rodriguez Neto and Gil. In the case of Nalinho, he was injured rather than dropped. Roberto Dinamite, aka Bob Dynamite, was known to be a favourite of Admiral Nunes, so this was held up as evidence that Coutinho was no longer in sole charge of selecting the team. The Brazil team was effectively being run by a selection committee, something of a throwback to the old days of international football. The best thing you can say about the new arrangements is that they worked in terms of Brazil getting a result in this game. Caninho's cross went through to Bob Dynamite, who set himself before shooting past Concilia. It was the only goal of the game. David Miller wrote that this was more great escape than memorable victory. Austria, who had already qualified, seemed content to go through the motions. Coutinho said that Brazil would improve. We have gained in force as a team. We have a better defence than 1970 and 1974. And now, in the second round, we will play as well as we expect. Austria and Brazil were level in points and goal difference, but the Austrians had scored more goals, three to Brazil's two. It had been assumed that goals scored would be the tiebreaker, but FIFA's regulations allowed for the drawing of lots in the event of a points and goal difference tie. Brazil were ready to fly to Mendoza for the second round, Group B, only to hear that lots might have to be drawn. In the event, the drawing of lots was discarded and FIFA officials decided to use goals scored as a tiebreak, meaning Austria did indeed win the group. Sweden versus Spain. This match was played simultaneously with Brazil versus Austria, meaning that whoever won had a chance of going through if Brazil failed to beat Austria. The only goal came with 15 minutes remaining, Juanito carving open the Spanish defence and Asensi blasting the ball past Hellstrom. Hellstrom had another good game, stopping Spain from winning by a wider margin. 
The Spanish victory turned out to be academic, as Brazil had indeed beaten Austria. So Austria won the group, Brazil were second, Spain were third, Sweden finished bottom. Bill Sore wrote that, as a group, it had been a poor spectacle, it had produced only eight goals. None of these four teams were to leave any lasting memories of this World Cup. And finally, we're on to Group 4. And in advance, just letting you know, this one's going to be a bit Scotland-heavy. So we'll start with Scotland versus Peru. The Scots were based in Alta Gracia, south of Córdoba. Graham McClaw wrote that, The service at the Sierra's hotel made faulty towers look like a haven of Teutonic efficiency. They found that the swimming pool had no water in it, plaster was coming off the ceiling, the bedrooms were dingy, the mattresses had no springs in them, carpets were still being laid. Years later, Alan Ruff would say, I'm not making excuses, but these things affect players. I love that. I'm not making excuses, but... The team bus had even struggled to get up the hill to the hotel. The clutch failing and smoke belching out all over the place. A broken down bus, a swimming pool with no water. There were omens and metaphors everywhere you looked. The training pitch suffered from the same issues that had affected the playing surfaces at Buenos Aires and Mar del Plata. Graham McClaw described the surface as rutted and treacherous. This left the players vulnerable to muscle injuries, also, the heat and humidity during the day affected the training schedule. The home internationals played in May 1978 suggested that Scotland weren't all they were cracked up to be. Two draws and a defeat from the three games. Much would be made of McLeod's lack of preparation. An example of this was how he had turned down an opportunity to join the BBC's Archie McPherson on a trip to Lima to see Peru play Argentina in a friendly. In the event, the Beebs recorded footage turned out to be unusable, meaning that the Scots couldn't even see the Peruvians on video. Ronnie McDevitt would write, however, that in the manager's defence, his own notes document that he was driving hundreds of miles to watch players as he sought to finalise his World Cup squad. Four days before the Peru game, McLeod blasted stories that the players had been up all night drinking whiskey. The manager said, I'm getting a bit sick of local journalists. On the night in question, only officials, not players, stayed up late. McLeod picked the strange team for the Peru game, 
The fullbacks were Stuart Kennedy and Martin Buggan, who had never played together. Buggan, a natural centre-back, was out of position on the left to cover for the suspended Willie Donaghy. Frank McGee in the Daily Mirror warned that Buckham's lack of pace might be exposed. Tom Forsyth and Kenny Burns were the centre-back pairing and they'd only started together twice before. Gordon McQueen would have been one of the centre-backs but injury meant he would miss the tournament although bizarrely McLeod named him in the squad anyway effectively wasting a spot. Another big loss was Danny McGrain, also injured. In midfield, McLeod selected the Derby County duo of Bruce Rioch and Don Masson, but both of them were out of form and had been transfer listed by their club. There was no room for Graham Souness, the European Cup winner, or Archie Gamble, a first division champion, or Lou McCary, who had been in good form for Manchester United. Asa Hartford, Willie Johnston and Kenny Daglish also made the team. Believing Peru to be weak in defence, Big Joe Jordan was picked to lead the line, McLeod reckoning that aerial power would be a decisive factor. Graham McCall said that the lineup represented loyalty and continuity. Phil Thor noted that McLeod's loyalty wasn't necessarily a good thing, given how Scotland had been underwhelming in the home internationals. McLeod's ignorance of Peru was revealed when he told the BBC that Buchan would be marking Oblitas, completely unaware that Oblitas would be playing on the opposite wing. Peru, who had been in a training camp since February, not to be impressed by Scotland. Alexandre Heredia, the Peru assistant manager, said, Scotland are a team with no brains. They play with both strength, but no head. And they have the insolence to say they can beat us. Heredia also warned that Mignante, one of the speedy Peruvian wingers, would fly past the Scottish defence. Simpitas, the Peru captain, said, No one must underrate us. The Peruvians had their own story of sloppy preparation when Marcos Calderon, the manager, had travelled to see Scotland play Italy, only to discover that he was watching a Scottish League Select 11. The Peruvian media hammered him for his mistake. McLeod laughed off the comments from the Peru camp. They can say what they like about us. Anyhow, we never underrated Peru. In the Belfast Telegraph, Malcolm Brody reported that McLeod appeared to be rowing back on some of his cocky comments about Peru's lack of threat. McLeod's words about not underrating Peru seemed at odds with his laissez-faire approach towards Scotland's preparations. The manager also said, Spurring us on is the thought of people back home. When we go out on the pitch, we will be thinking of the empty streets in Scottish cities and the millions of fans watching us. This match was a 4.45pm kickoff local time, 8.45pm in Old Caledonia, 
and a Saturday night too. Perfect for World Cup football. It was a boom time for pubs, off licenses and TV rental shops. Even at government level, there was an awareness of World Cup fever. The Labour Party had arranged for the by-election in the vacant Hamilton seat to be held on Wednesday the 31st of May, rather than the traditional Thursday, as the 1st of June was the first day of the World Cup, and Labour didn't want its voters being torn between watching the opening game and going to the polls. Compare that with 1970, when Harold Wilson was worried about the effect the Mexico World Cup might have on the general election. And make sure you listen to that episode from Series 1. Labour was defending a 3,000 majority over the Scottish National Party. Jim Callaghan, the Prime Minister, said, The best double I can suggest is Robertson for Hamilton, Scotland for the World Cup. George Robertson, Labour Party candidate, 18,800. And that George Robertson has been duly elected to serve as Member of Parliament for the Hamilton constituency. George Robertson, a 32-year-old trade union officer, held the seat for Labour with an increased majority. The suggestion that the national fervour around the Scottish team would translate into votes for the Nationalist Party was wishful thinking. Robertson went on to become the Defence Secretary in Tony Blair's first cabinet and then the Secretary General of NATO. This is all relevant, by the way. Margot MacDonald, the SNP runner-up at Hamilton, believed that the disastrous performance of the Scottish team in Argentina dented national self-confidence and set the nationalist project back for generations. Polls in 1978 showed two-thirds support for a devolved Scottish Assembly, but by the time the referendum was held on the 1st of March 1979, only 51% voted for an Assembly, and this wasn't enough to clear the provisions of the Cunningham Amendment, which stipulated that 40% of the total registered electorate had to be in favour. James Greer, if you're listening, we should do a paper called We'll Really Shake Him Up, Ali McLeod and the Rise and Fall of Scottish Nationalism in the 1970s. I would settle for beating Peru 1-0 or 2-0 because in this section, if you win your first two games, you're through. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what we aim to try and do, is to get it over, get the strain off us and go out and we could possibly play the Holland game as a practice game. Scotland started well against Peru. McLeod would later say that in the first 15 minutes, it looked like we would win in a counter. Dalglish could play hard, but on for number six, Riach and his favourite left foot, there's Gordon and it's 1-0. Midfield really have said about this game from the start to control it. It's worked, and these players coming through to the midfield now is Hartford pushing it on. Bruce Rioch on that favourite uh, left foot, but goalkeeper couldn't hold it. It was real power of the shock. Caroga couldn't get back, and Jordan cool enough and good enough to take full advantage. So after 15 minutes exactly, Scotland won for Rudil. A nice piece of interplay between Hartford, Johnston, and Dalgleish led to a shot for Rioch. 
Quiroga, the Peruvian goalkeeper, could only parry the ball out, and Jordan followed it in to give Scotland the lead. Jordan's opener should have been the catalyst for Scotland's domination, but this didn't happen. Peru took control with Kubias showing his talent, and no Scot could get near him. McLeod's belief that the Peruvian superstar was past his best was clearly wrong. Scotland were suddenly hanging on, and Peru passed through them almost at will. Oblitas and Munyante, the wingers, were having a field day. Gavin Miller described them as leaves on the wings of a gale. The almost inevitable equaliser arrived just before half time. Six Velasquez. Whistles down. Now five wave down. I'm stopping in a tangle, and it's one each. Quito broke through the gap with Scottish defence slightly square, and Ruff could do absolutely nothing about that. A series of sharp passes and eventually Cueto burst through to far low past Alan Ruff. It was 1-1 at half-time. On 64 minutes, Scotland were presented with a chance to reimpose themselves on the game. And he saved it! A brilliant save again by Haroga. Masson had to wait, but he struck the ball firmly, but he was too close to the goalkeeper. Rioch went down under a challenge from Kubias, and the referee pointed to the spot. Masson had scored a crucial penalty against Wales in the qualifiers. Here against Peru, he hit a feeble shot, and Quiroga saved it easily. Archie McPherson described Quiroga who had already made a point-blank save from Jordan, as the stake upon which Scotland would eventually impale itself. Years later, Jordan said that Quiroga was immense. As for poor old Masson, in 2020, he gave an interview in which he said, I let the nation down. If you miss a penalty in the World Cup, you're going to be blamed, and I accept that. After Masson's penalty miss, Scotland capitulated. Graham McCall wrote that the steep decline in performance that had been in evidence from the midpoint of the first half was reflected in the face of the Scotland captain. Rioch looked like a man wrestling to adjust mentally to a piece of particularly bad news. Duarte. Quite a- Kubias unleashed a screamer. Ruff, with that ball and chain around his ankles, had no chance. McLeod tried to staunch the bleeding by withdrawing Rioch and Masson, 
and sending on Makari and Gemmel, but it was too late to change the game. Pubias nailed down Scotland's coffin. Peruvians very useful in these dead ball positions. Mignanti dummy. The ball slipped through and it's a goal. And the ball just pushed inside the post and Peru take this 3-1 lead. I think this is the finest free kick ever scored in the World Cup. Most free kicks are hit with the front of the foot or the instep, but instead Kubias almost jabbed the ball with the outside of his right foot and somehow generated enough power to get it off the ground and swerve it into the top corner. Fantastic, like what a player. Final score, Peru 3, Scotland 1. Ali McLeod's vain glorious boasts had crashed at the first hurdle. Before the tournament, McLeod had said that most managers were fretting over who to pick, but he was fretting over who to leave out. Now in defeat, he passed the buck to his supposedly brilliant players. The manager said they got casual when all they had to do was keep finding Jordan. I don't know what came over them. If you have a team and eight of them don't play, then you're bang in trouble. Ronnie McDevitt described McLeod's post-match interview with ITV as edgy and nervous. The post-match press made grisly reading for Ali. Hugh McIlvenny wrote, The party is surely over and the Scots are left with little but dirty glasses and the stale smell of spent euphoria. They had every break that any contender for the World Cup would desire, but none of this was enough against the superior fluency, ambitious directness and powerful shooting of Peru. The Daily Mirror said, Scotland never looked dangerous. They failed in every position. Hugh Taylor for the Evening Times wrote that the manager blames the players. The players feel there wasn't enough background information on Peru. It's fighting and feuding time. Ali McLeod did not know enough about Peru. The brutal truth is that Scotland's players still lack the basic skills. Now only a miracle can see us qualify. Scotland are not in the same class as the top 10 in the competition. Jim Reynolds of the Glasgow Herald wrote, A nightmare of sheer inefficiency. A third-rate performance, which must rank as one of the worst ever by a side in the dark blue of Scotland. McLeod talked about treating the next two games as Bannockburn, but that was a sort of empty bravado that had contributed to Scotland's downfall. So far, so bad, but Scotland's problems were only just beginning. Here's Willie Johnston. I took these two calls reactive, man. Uh, I took them and I didn't even think about it. I didn't even think about a dope test, anything. After the game, we played terrible. We got beat myself and Kenny Dalglish and for a dope test. And I always remember into the jar, into the bottle, and uh, mine was a terrible colour. No, she's honest. I'm going. 
clever than Lager, you know, I'm going, oh, she's not even too clever than that. I didn't even think about it. So I went back to the bus, back to her camp. Next morning, Ali sent for me. He says, uh, your dope test is positive. He says, what did you take? I said, I took two tablets. Oh, I was just that, you know. The news of Willie Johnston's positive test broke when the Scotland team was at a reception. McLeod had an unseemly run-in with the legendary Trevor MacDonald when the ITN man was trying to get an interview with Johnston. Given how poor the Scots had been against Peru, the jokes wrote themselves. Pep pills? I thought the team was on tranquilizers. <laughs> Johnston claimed that the hay fever pills had been improved by Roger Rimmer the doctor at West Bromwich Albion. Rimmer would come out and say he never gave Johnston any pills to take to the World Cup. The pills contained a stimulant that was on FIFA's banned list. Johnston would also deny that the players had been warned about drugs. He also said that he never saw the banned list. You can call that the Sharapova defence. Archie McPherson said that Johnston by not declaring before the test that he was on pills, had been guilty of deception, whether intentional or not. Other players had the same pills in their possession. Most of the players were sympathetic towards Johnston because they had regarded the drugs as okay as they were commonly used in the English league. This caused Professor Arnold Beckett to ask rhetorically, why is it that a doctor for an English league team can prescribe a drug which is banned by FIFA? How can a player understand that there are dual standards? Is it the man who is guilty or the system? The Johnston affair added to the sense that Scotland were an incompetent, half-baked rabble. In light of Johnston's claims that pep pill use was common amongst British footballers, the PFA called for an inquiry. As if this wasn't enough, things took a bizarre twist when Don Masson admitted to taking a stimulant before retracting this admission. He said that he'd only confessed to take the heat off Johnston. Masson also sold his story to the News of the World, much to the displeasure of Scottish FA officials. McLeod announced that Masson wouldn't be picked again for the World Cup. Meanwhile, Willie Johnston faced a long trip home to the international wilderness. Willie Johnston flew back to Britain today, crossing the globe in a half-empty DC-10 all alone. The first part of his journey from Rio to Paris lasted 11 hours. He slept little, half-watched the movie and pecked at his food. When we joined his flight in Paris, he looked tired and very unhappy. I asked him how he felt. Sick! Could you just leave me alone, please? He'd been travelling for three days, he said, after being smuggled out of the back entrance of Scotland's training camp. He told me he'd spent those three days wondering what he would say when he got home. For the first time, he read his own story in the British newspapers, and he didn't like what he saw. Much of what they say about me is wrong, he said. But he did confirm to me that he had taken two pills before the match with Peru. He'd had a cold for a week, he said, and thought they might clear his head. 
but he claimed it never occurred to him the pills contained drugs on the banned list. He wasn't even worried when he took the dope test. At Heathrow Airport, London, he was met by Ron Atkinson, the manager of his home team, West Bromwich Albion. Mr Atkinson had told reporters before the arrival, believe me, I don't think the lad's done anything very awful. Willie's a good player, a good professional. Willie Johnson himself said he had been very silly. He was looking forward now to seeing his family and then getting away for a while to try to forget it all. A cordon of burly policemen carved a path for him through the massed ranks of the press at Heathrow. They helped him into a car and he was on the last leg of his journey home. The Scottish FA banned Johnston from the international team for life. Where positive drug tests are, conspiracy theories are never far away. Johnston said at the time that he was being used as a scapegoat to deflect attention away from the Peru defeat. When it later emerged that had Scotland drawn or beaten Peru, the Johnston test would have led to a 2-0 forfeit. Johnston claimed that FIFA were making an example of him because Scotland had lost the match anyway, so FIFA wouldn't have to alter the result retrospectively. When Scotland played away against Argentina in 1977, Johnston had had a good game before being sent off. Johnston claimed that Leopoldo Luque, the Argentina striker, had warned him not to come back for the World Cup. This is how Johnston interpreted that. He was suggesting I was going to be a marked man. When my name was selected for the doping test, I think that was what Luque had been talking about. The idea that the authorities were out to get Willie Johnston sounds extremely far-fetched in my opinion. The bottom line is, it was his responsibility to know what was on FIFA's ban list and his responsibility to know what he was putting in his body. Scotland's reputation was at rock bottom. They'd suffered an ignominious defeat. The local media in Argentina was reporting that they were a squad of pissheads and now junkies as well. But at least things can't get any worse. Netherlands versus Iran. If you remember from last month's episode, injuries and political intrigue had taken out Iran's first choice forward line. Not what the debutants needed when they were about to take on the 1974 runners-up. Mohajirani, the Iran manager, tried to G up his players before kickoff. Majid Panahi wrote how the players had cold feet. Kazirani, one of the defenders, did his best to get his teammates to focus and try not to be intimidated by the Dutch. Iran actually had a good first half. A deflected shot had Youngblood, the Dutch goalkeeper, scrambling across the line to make a save. The Dutch had gone with a back three, and Stuart Horsfield wrote that it looked anything but solid when called upon to defend. Horsfield also wrote that the Iranians tackled with vigour and tried to counter-attack when the opportunity arose. Most of the match reports mention Iran's hard tackling. It was this tackling that was their downfall. Shortly before half-time, 
Abdullahi's lunge brought Rene van der Kerkhoff crashing to the ground in the penalty area. Van der Kerkhoff picked up the wrist injury that would lead to him wearing a protective cast, the cast that would become a claw celeb just before the final. Rob Rensenbrink calmly rolled a penalty kick to Hijazi's right. Just after the hour mark, Rensenbrink soared to head in the second Dutch goal and that pretty much killed the game. A wonderful solo run from Johnny Rep was ended by another Iranian foul in the box. This time Rensenbrink went high to the keeper's left with the penalty to complete his hat-trick. A 3-0 victory for the Dutch. They had done what you're supposed to do when you face the group minnows. Scotland take note. A sense of fashion now from one with the clothes show. The Dutch kits were made by Adidas. However, the Van de Kerkhoff twins and Nalinga had sponsorship deals with Puma. These three guys followed Cruyff's example from 1974 by wearing shirts which had only two stripes rather than the Adidas three. Iran versus Scotland. By this stage, Scotland's morale was in shreds. The Glasgow Herald and the Daily Mirror both reported that the players had been unhappy with the way McLeod had blamed them following the Peru match. The relationship between the team and the press had initially been positive, but the Peru defeat, combined with the story of a casino trip, and a run-in with an Argentinian guard caused trouble. The encounter with the guard was actually resolved quickly and peacefully, but when the story came out at a press conference, it added to the impression that the squad was a bunch of ill-disciplined, drunken gamblers. Stories were being written by local Argentinian journalists, picked up by the British press, and then reported in the British papers. There were claims from the Mexican camp that a raucous Scottish party had disturbed them at the hotel and contributed to Mexico's 6-0 defeat to West Germany. The Tunisians were also scathing of Scotland's apparent lack of professionalism. Ronnie McDevitt wrote that the drinking stories contributed to bad feeling within the camp amongst players who would soon get bored. After the tournament, the SFA's official report would identify the salacious stories as a factor in deflating the mood of the squad. In relation to the drinking stories, a lot of the time it was Scotland fans in replica gear going out on the lash and being mistaken for players. Although, given the way Scotland played in 1978, there probably wasn't any difference in ability between 11 drunk Scotland fans and 11 sober Scotland players. (laughs) There's a hilarious vignette that tells you all you need to know about the amateur hour at the Scotland camp. A fan called Robbie Sterry was wearing a Scotland shirt and he ended up at the team hotel. He was assumed to be a player, so he signed into the register asked Willie Donachie, and then went to the hotel bar and got pissed. 
that actually sounds like something I would do. The Scotland fans travelled a good numbers and were probably the best supported European team. Obviously, the numbers are nothing compared to these days when air travel has become more accessible to the working man and working woman. McLeod hadn't seen Iran, but his assistant said they were athletic and had good movement. Ali wasn't worried, expecting that Scotland would have too much for them. He sabre-rattled about Scotland having got their confidence back. In McLeod's defence, he had planned to watch Iran in a friendly against France, but the match was rearranged and a clash with McLeod's preparations for Scotland's home international against Northern Ireland. Ali Parvin, the Iran captain, said, We will not be easily beaten by anyone. Scotland will be surprised by the calibre of our play. If they underestimate us, they will be in trouble. McLeod made some changes to the team. Donaghy, back from suspension, came in at left-back. Buchan was moved to centre-back to partner Burns, with Forsyth dropping out. Kennedy had to withdraw because of illness, meaning Sandy Jordan came in at right-back. Gemmell came into the midfield in place of Masson. McCary came in to replace the injured Reoc and John Robertson took over from the disgraced Willie Johnston. Years later, Alan Ruff would recall this match as being the biggest pressure game ever, coming on the back of the Peru defeat, the Johnston disgrace, and the salacious news stories. Archie McPherson wrote that, From early on, you could tell that they had no idea how to take on a very fit side, full of running, and certainly far from the amateurish outfit we thought they would be. Iran started out like they wanted to do a containing job, but once they worked out that Scotland weren't up to much, the Iranians became more confident. However, they fell behind, although that was more to do with slapstick defending, rather than any great football on Scotland's part. So Hansen lofting it through the centre, keeper drops it, and it's going to be an own goal. Referee is giving it. Yes, the referee is giving a goal. Hijazi, the Iran goalkeeper, and Eskandarian, one of the defenders, both went for the same ball and got into a mix-up. Eskandarian, attempting to make the clearance, ended up knocking it into his own net. Ronnie McDevitt wrote that Scotland's half-hearted celebrations added fuel to the theories that some of them wished to return home at the earliest opportunity. The goal was a gift, but Scotland weren't good enough to make the most of it. Dennis Law, providing punditry on BBC Radio 2, criticised Scotland's lack of firepower and said the decision to leave Andy Gray at home had been a mistake. Law changed his tune from a few months earlier when he described this mob as the best ever Scottish side. Dalgleish and Robertson failed to produce the goods. Buchan went off with a head injury after being kicked by Donaghy, which just about sums it up. Iran equalised on the R mark. 
Parvin flicking it through space on the right again. One, two, three men racing into the center there. Bunge full stretch. Scotland trying not to challenge. The ball floated across goal. Still not cleared. Gemmel challenging. Driven in and it's a goal. Iran are level. And that is disaster for Scotland. Scotland were exposed on their own right-hand side, a theme of this World Cup. Benafard forced his way past Gemmel before shooting low past Alan Ruff, who had left a massive gap at the near post. Graham McCaw wrote of the unforgettable image of a bedraggled, befuddled McLeod on the bench during that second half, looking close to tears before burying his head in his hands as the match unravelled before his eyes. Asa Hartford would describe the game as the worst any of us had played in. The match finished 1-1, the nadir of Scottish international football, and there's a long list of them to choose from, by the way. Jim Reynolds wrote that Ali McLeod's tattered tartan army died of shame. The Scotland fans were furious and vented their feelings as the players left the pitch and then as the team bus was leaving the stadium. Hugh McIlvenny wrote that men who had travelled thousands of miles turned against their own reason for coming and shouted obscenities at it. Before the match, some fans had already been questioning the perks that the players were in line for and after it they chanted you're only in it for the money. There were also shouts of, Go home, you bums. You're a disgrace to Scotland. Don Masson's comments about the boring trip and the crap accommodation cut no ice with the ordinary working-class Scottish fans who had given up jobs and spent their savings to get all the way to Argentina. The working man and woman, you know, let's not be sexist about this, doesn't have time to listen to the out-of-touch gripes about how hard it is to be a professional footballer. Back in old Caledonia, Danny O'Donnell, a Scotland fan, bought a wreath and left it on the steps of the Scottish FA headquarters. The SFA HQ would also have its windows smashed. A Scotland fan put a sign up in his restaurant window which read, Ali McLeod has never been here. The headlines made grim reading for McLeod. Scotland's shame. Blackest day. Ali's night of shame. We need a miracle. Worse than 1954. Dead end, Ali. I also hope there was a headline somewhere saying Persian mugs. McLeod said, I feel terrible for the people at home. The players are shattered and so am I. I take personal blame. The players did not play as they can because they were under terrible pressure. That's all very well, Alistair, but the World Cup is a pressure situation for all nations. And the only reason the pressure on Scotland was terrible was because they had made such a mess at the first game. It was obvious that McLeod had underestimated the challenges that Scotland would face. Ronnie McDevitt wrote that the manager was ridiculed 
as a Pied Piper cartoon type character who had misled a gullible nation into unrealistic territory. McLeod was in the firing line from SFA officials over his pre-tournament planning. Players were openly talking about not wanting to bother with the last game, and some Scotland fans travelled to the team's camp to shout insults at the players. There was a story, which I believe is apocryphal, that during a press conference, McLeod patted a stray dog and said the pooch was his only friend. Inevitably, the dog bit him. The dog had to have an injection in case it caught rabies from McLeod. (laughs) Hugh Taylor, writing in the Evening Times, said, I thought our worst World Cup was 1954. This was even more dreadful because we were kidded into thinking we had a good side. There must be a thorough investigation into what went wrong, into what has made us once again the laughing stock of the world. Good God, if we can't beat Iran, where are we? Archie Gemmell said that the players should take the blame. Joe Jordan said that he had lost sleep thinking about the dreadful performance against Iran. Lou McCary ran his mouth to television and the papers, actions which would end his international career. There were gripes about money, which brought up unresolved pre-tournament arguments, as well as confirming the perception that the players were on the make. Chrysler, the car company, deserted the sinking ship, severing their links with the Scottish team. The slogan of the ad campaign, both run rings around the opposition, rang laughably hollow. The Ali Tartan Army record also suffered a grisly fate. The funny thing about that record was, sold all these copies, and the day after Iran drew me as one each, uh, a guy in Dundee was selling it for a penny and giving you a hammer to break it with. I've just realised we haven't checked in on Graham Sunes yet. Mr. Sunes, your verdict on Scotland's performance against Iran? Totally unacceptable. Insipid, they've been so weak and, and pussy-footed. McLeod may have become a hapless, comical figure, but his Iranian counterpart had problems too. Mohajirani had promised to Shah that he would give up smoking after demands from Iran's anti-smoking lobby. However, under the pressure of the match, he had lit up. This led to the Iran boss being labelled a disgrace back home and being reprimanded via a telephone call from Tehran. Netherlands versus Peru. Papel switched to four at the back, shuffled the midfield, and moved Ari Han into a more advanced role to be the midfield general. The Dutch controlled the game, but they made sure to set up to curb the Peruvian threats, which had caused so much trouble for Scotland. Colin Malham wrote that pragmatism was undoubtedly effective. Yet it was sad to see a side which had built its reputation on fluid attacking football reduced to such negative thinking. 
The match at times seemed to be a personal duel between Kiroga and Rendenbrink. The Peruvian goalkeeper made three good saves to keep out the Dutch forward. Peru steadily worked themselves back into the game, but couldn't spring a shock on the 1974 runners-up. The match finished goalless, which suited both teams. Peru, perceived as one of the group's weak links, were almost into the second group stage. It would take a cataclysmic defeat by Scotland to stop the Dutch from joining them. The Dutch licked the shadow of their former selves, but the pairs complained that the surface and the altitude at Mendoza was hampering their play. A bit of shirt number nerdery now. Youngblood, the Dutch goalkeeper, was wearing the number 8 shirt. What happened was that the 1974 squad members were allowed to retain their shirt numbers for 1978. In 74, the Dutch had given out their shirts alphabetically by surname, which is why Youngblood had such an unusual number. Eight of the survivors from 1974 opted to retain their number. There's number six, Janssen, number eight, Youngblood, number 10, Rene van der Kerkhoff. The surname was taken from the K, not the V or the D. 11, Willy van der Kerkhoff, 13, Naiskins, 16, Rep, 17, Reisbergen, and 20, Subir. Four of the survivors changed their number. Han went from two to nine, Crawl went from 12 to 5, Renzenbrink went from 15 to 12, and Shrivers went from 18 to 1. Netherlands versus Scotland. Despite their disastrous two games up to this point, Scotland would still qualify for the second group stage if they beat the Dutch by three clear goals. McLeod spent the days leading up to the match having to fight off stories. He denied that he had resigned. He said that there had been a meeting about money, but it wasn't a row. He also said that Derek Johnston, or John Stone, that's one of his Simpsons fan, the Rangers striker hadn't taken a banned stimulant. There had been a rumour going around that DJ had taken something and had been left out of the team in order to avoid another scandal. The Evening Times reported that the Scottish FA wanted Jock Steen to replace McLeod. An SFA official told the paper that It will cost money, but we must get the right setup. We can't go through this again. Colin Malham called McLeod's team selection for the Dutch game, the manager's first attack of common sense. The pivotal decision was to bring in Graham Souness for his first game of the World Cup. Souness had bossed the midfield for Liverpool on their way to European Cup glory, playing the pass for Dalglish's winning goal. It was obvious he should have been in from the start. 
Hugh Taylor of the Evening Times wrote that Funes has the arrogance and style to let Scotland flourish again. Bruce Millen, the Secretary of State for Scotland, one of the forgotten politicians of that era, flew out to Mendoza to watch the game, following in the footsteps of his colleague Dennis Howell, the Minister for Sport. Questions were raised by both Conservative and Labour MPs about the cost of these ministerial trips, although Hector Munro, the Shadow Minister for Sport, said that Millen had a duty to be there. Ernst Tappel suggested that he wouldn't mind the Dutch losing the game, so long as it wasn't by three goals. The big contrast with Venus Meikles in 1974, who had scorned the idea of the Netherlands playing for a draw in the decisive match against Brazil. Happel would tinker with his team again, leaving out Han and bringing back Rep. Scotland played like a team transformed. Sunes crossed for Riach to head against the bar. Gamal found Riach, who flicked the ball into the path of Daglish, who shot just wide. Firstly for Saif, and then Daglish had the ball in the net, but both efforts were ruled out. For Saif's for offside, Daglish's for a foul. The Scots finally looked like a coherent side, but all that did was vividly demonstrate the underachievement of the first two games. Sunes was orchestrating things with his passing and running. Archie McPherson wrote that Sunes's performances exposed the shallowness of thinking and planning that had preceded this whole venture. The Netherlands, by contrast, were playing exactly like a team who had been told it was okay not to win. Stuart Horsfield would write, To say that the Dutch performance was off-colour would be an understatement. David Coleman on BBC Commentary remarked that the Dutch looked very unstable in defence. Rioch got away from Kroll and crossed for Jordan, who lost out to a clumsy challenge from Pertfriet. It's difficult to tell without the multi-angle replays whether it should have been a Scotland penalty. The Dutch worked their way back into the game and they were helped by another self-destructive moment from Scotland. Kennedy. Sunnis. Kennedy. Oh, there's trouble here. Wreck. And what a good tackle that was. And a penalty given, it wasn't good enough. And this disaster for Scotland. Kennedy looks as if he made contact with the ball. The referee had a clear view. And this total disaster. Wandale, rough guess right, but couldn't get there. And that, we believe, may well be the 1,000th goal scored in the World Cup. Rensenbrook, right in the corner, rough nearly got there. There seemed to be no danger as soon as gave the ball to Kennedy. However, Rensenbrink pressed, Kennedy lost the ball, Scotland vulnerable down the right-hand side yet again. Rep collected the ball, rushed into the penalty area and was brought down by Kennedy. Rensenbrink took the penalty and scored low to Alan Ruff's right. 
The mountain had got even higher for Scotland, but they managed to find their way back into the match just before half-time. Hartford, Donaghy, Sunnis, Jordan, and then Dudley, and it's on each. Just the boost Scotland needed before half-time. They didn't deserve to be behind. Dalglishus looks sharper in this match than he has through the World Cup series. Right on the spot to Dougie home. Brilliant jump by Jordan. It was always his. And Dalglish made no mistake. Sunez sent a left footed cross towards the far post. Jordan, finally dominating in the air, towered over his man, knocked the ball down for Daglish, who hammered it past Youngblood. Before the match, Happel had named Daglish as one player who hadn't replicated his club performances at the World Cup. Now Daglish showed the sort of form that Liverpool fans were used to. Colin Malham said it was no coincidence that Dalglish was playing his best football with Sunes, his Liverpool colleague, in the side. Barely a minute into the second half, Scotland's fortunes continued to improve. Dalglish. Oh, and on that, a penalty given. Sunes went through. The ball knocked down to him. Sunes went through, and the referee very close gave the penalty. But that was clearly a penalty. I think uh, most people would agree. Sunas went at the defence, was turned over, and now Gamble's got a chance to put Scotland 2-1 in front. It is. Little Gamble, cool, organised, struck the ball hard, and it could have been, couldn't have been further into the corner. Willie van der Kerkhoff brought Sunes down six yards out. Gamble hit the penalty low to Youngblood's left to give Scotland a 2-1 lead. A low long-range shot from Rep was saved by Ruff. Then Rep's spectacular overhead kick from Boskamp's cross flew over. The Dutch showed their physical streak with a succession of fouls as Scotland tried to get forward. On 68 minutes, we had Scotland's ultimate World Cup moment. Kennedy. There's an argument going on with the referee, between uh, Rioch and the referee. Just wants to get on with it. Gamble. Good play by Gamble. And again. It's 3-1. A brilliant individual goal by this hard little professional has put Scotland in dreamland. The miracle is beginning to happen. They need one more to qualify. And Gemmel, first one, then two. Then he faced up his own player and another defender. He was clear, and finishing like this is lethal. Ball tackled Daglish. The loose ball ran for Gemmel. The Nottingham Forest man skipped away from Janssen went past Crawl, who slid away in the opposite direction, danced inside Pertfleet, who was left haplessly on the turf, before lifting the ball over Youngblood, one of the finest goals ever scored in the World Cup. Gamble celebrated by punching the air with his left fist. Well, 
Graham McCall described Gemmell's Wonderstrike as a goal of instinct and imagination. Gemmell's international career had been stop-start. He'd made his debut in 1971, but at one stage he went over three years without a cap, from May 1972 to October 1975. Now he'd scored the most remarkable Scotland goal ever. Incredibly, Scotland were one goal away from the decisive three-goal margin. The farce almost returned straight from the restart. Boskamp's free kick went all the way to the back post. Kennedy, under no pressure, headed the ball towards his own goal, but it wriggled just wide. Scotland's high ended just three minutes after Gamble's goal. Johnny Rep from Long Range unleashed a screamer into the top corner. The Dutchman would later say, I just shut my eyes and hit it. Alan Ruff, beaten from Long Range yet again, would say, The balls were much, much lighter than we were used to, and they did move in the air. Just your timely reminder that players always complain about the World Cup ball. I think Alan Ruff needed to look within. Scotland's lead had been cut to 3-2, and they couldn't score again. That is it. Scotland go out of the World Cup. Scotland were out, but they had managed to win back the fans who had been so angry after the first two games. David Lacey wrote that it was a marvellous funeral, a bitter climax, but a gallant epilogue. Frank McGee wrote that the victory may save them from being savaged when they get back to Scotland, but it cannot compensate for what might have been. Scotland's performance against the Dutch showed that they were capable of good things, but that only added to the sense of disappointment. They'd underestimated the two inverted commas weaker teams in the group and only found their form once qualification was almost impossible. Hugh Carlos, the British charge d'affaire in Buenos Aires, wrote that in retrospect, it would seem that the poor Scottish performance was due to complacency and lack of professionalism on the part of all concerned. They seemed provincials out of their depth in international waters. There is a postscript to this match. In the wake of the Diego Maradona drug bust in 1994, and make sure you listen to that episode from Series 2, McLeod was asked about the Willie Johnston scandal, and he said that FIFA had told him and the officials that the Scottish team had been docked two points, but they kept this a secret from the players, effectively meaning that if Scotland had beaten the Netherlands by the requisite margin, they wouldn't have gone through anyway. When Archie McPherson and his researcher followed us up with Ernie Walker, the former SFA head honcho, Walker said that Scotland had been deducted points 
but the SFA were only informed of this after the match, and the idea of a plot to deceive the players was nonsense. Willie Johnston, Lou McCary, Don Masson, Tom Forsyth, Joe Harper and Bruce Rioch were never capped again. When the Scottish FA had their meeting after the World Cup, McLeod was allowed to continue, but he would take charge of only one more game before resigning and being replaced by Jock Steen. You just wonder what Big Jock might have been able to do with this team. McLeod would forever be remembered for the chaos and carnage in Argentina. He was a good club manager, but not up to scratch at international level. But that can be said about so many managers. Graham Taylor, for instance. McLeod was a character, and the World Cup needs characters. If you're going to have a disastrous World Cup campaign, you may as well smash into the rocks at full speed instead of drifting into them slowly. Peru versus Iran. Hansan Roshan, the Iran striker who had been struggling with his fitness, was brought in for his first start of the World Cup with his left knee strapped up. Shortly before half time, he gave Iran a glimpse of what they had been missing when he scored with a controlled low volley after a Peruvian defensive header had dropped to him just inside the box. Unfortunately for Iran, they were already 3-0 down by this stage. With just two minutes on the clock, Mignante swung in a corner from the right. Velasquez met the ball from 12 yards and headed it in to give Peru the lead. Colin Malum wrote that Iran never really recovered from the shock of finding themselves a goal down after two minutes. There was controversy when Peru were awarded a penalty on 36 minutes. Oblitas went shoulder to shoulder with an Iran defender. It's difficult to see who it is on the footage. I think it might be Abdullahi. The referee pointed at the spot. It looked a very harsh decision. Kubias swept the penalty high past Hijazi. Three minutes later, Kubias was on the spot again. He was brought down by Hijazi at the climax of another wonderful passing move. Kubias put this penalty low into the bottom right-hand corner. Iran had conceded four penalties in their three games. Afterwards, Mohajirani, the Iran manager, was furious, saying, We have had four penalties given against us. Is this justice? We didn't come here claiming we would beat these teams, but we have not been given a chance. Iran continued to plug away. Roshan held off several challenges to pay in Danafard, who tested Kiroga with a low shot. Kiroga then made a splendid double save from Roshan. It was Kubias who delivered the killing thrust. Again, it was another fine pass to put him through. Kubias attempted to play the ball onto a colleague, but it struck an Iran defender. The rebound came back to Kubias who jabbed it past the goalkeeper with the outside of that wonderful right foot. Kubias' hat-trick meant that he had become the first man to score five in two different World Cups, 
You'd had five at Mexico in 1970, and now five in Argentina in 1978. A remarkable achievement, one that has only been matched since by Miroslav Klose, 2002 and 2006, and Thomas Muller, 2010 and 2014. Peru's 4-1 victory confirmed them as group winners, an impressive performance given how they'd been written off in so many tournament previews. The Peruvians were one of the most impressive sides of the World Cup up to this point. The Netherlands were through as runners-up, but they were struggling to live up to their recent past. They were an orchestra without a conductor, the conductor of course being Cruyff. Although Eric Batty argued in world soccer that the real problem was the lack of an outstanding centre-forward, Scotland went out, their campaign would go down in infamy. Iran finished bottom of the group, and if you read Majid Panahi's article, The Dark Side of Iran's National Football Team at the 1978 World Cup, he writes of how 1978 was the end of an era. Who knows what Iran might have achieved if they had a fully fit forward line and weren't playing against the backdrop of a deteriorating and destabilising political situation. There you go, that's the end of this month's edition of World Cup Rambling. Quite an interesting first group stage, the fervour of Argentina, the revival of Italy, the unexpectedly strong performances of Tunisia, Peru and Austria, the decline of West Germany, the Netherlands, Poland and Brazil, the top four teams from 1974, and of course the anarchy of Scotland. I'll be back next month with the second group stage and the knockout stage, which consists of just two matches, the third place playoff and the final. Plenty of drama and controversy there, with much of it centering on Argentina. Follow me on Twitter at Matthew Ocott and also at World Cup Ramble. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. I'm off now to have some empanadas washed down with a few bottles of Kielmes. Then once I've recovered from my hangover, I'm going to find an Argentinian senorita who can show me how to do the tango. This is an audio format, so you didn't see me using air quotes when I said, do the tango. Adios amigos. <laughs> <laughs>